next week we'll begin a four-week Christmas series, and this week kind of finds us a little bit of a funny Sunday. Antonio over in the Spanish congregation is catching up with us in the book of Acts, and so he is preaching on Paul at Athens, which we preached and looked at together last week. So I want to do something a little bit different this morning, but to be quite honest, it's not much different at all than what we've been looking at over the last several weeks. I've got a hammer up here, Hank. We'll call this message the hammer, all right? All of us know that when you go to drive a, a nail, one of the things you do is that you tap it a few times to get it set before you get to bang on it a handful of times to drive it all the way in. And sometimes as a preacher who's preaching God's Word or doing his best, you feel like you're just able to tap the nail and get it set before it's time to move on to the next nail. Sometimes you don't feel like you get a chance to whack something all the way in, hoping to impress it upon the hearts of God's people, taking the truth that God's Word is teaching, and if God wills, bring it together with the hearts and the souls of our lives. So today, what I want to do is take another whack, or two or three, at some of the lessons that we've been learning over the last several weeks. For the last, I don't know how many years, I have taught the book of Acts at the Kanakuk Institute up in Branson, Missouri, every spring. Go up there for a few days, and in about six hours, work my way all the way through the book of Acts with those students. And because we move so fast, I'm never able to just slow down, take a look. I mean, I've read the book of Acts, I don't know how many times, but, but to really just dig in to what is here. And yet, preaching through it over these last several months has, has allowed me to do that. As we take paragraph or story by story, to slow down and to dig in and to glean as best I can tell what God's Word has for us. And so, I've enjoyed this last section of Acts, starting in chapter 16, verse 6, more than I ever have before in my Christian life. And I think it's simply because of stopping, slowing down, looking, looking, lingering, studying, praying. And so I want to take some more wax at some of these nails that we maybe just got to set over the last several weeks. So if you'll turn with me back to chapter 16, verse 6. If you're new with us, we're going through the book of Acts. If you don't have a Bible with you, that's okay. You might want to pull out your phone and pull up online Acts chapter 16. We're going to be moving fast this morning. All of these lessons, if you've been here, will just be some repeats. But again, hopefully, something will stick out to you, if not more than one thing, that God is speaking and wants you, wants me to apply to your life. Several weeks ago, we looked at chapter 16, verses 6 through 10, and said in so many words that God wonderfully redirects his on-the-move people. God wonderfully redirects his on-the-move people, or we might say his mission-minded people. 
You'll notice it in verse 6. They passed through the Phrygian and Galatian region, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And after they came to Mysia, they were trying to go into Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus would not permit them. And passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas. And so again, Paul and his missionary buddies were trying to go further west, and the Lord said no. And then they tried to go further north, and the Lord said no, and redirected their path to Troas. They were making plans. They were trying to go here. They were trying to go there. And yet the Spirit of God redirected their path. And we surmise that maybe Paul got frustrated Lord, I want to go here, and yet you've turned me there. And so then I wanted to go here, and yet you turned me there. Maybe he got frustrated. Probably not. Paul seemingly always had his plans with open-handed trust before the Lord. And when they came in verse 9 to Troas, a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him, saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. When he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. We again surmise that maybe Paul had that on his long-term vision plan. That eventually he would go to Macedonia, eventually he would go into Athens, into Corinth, but, but probably not right now. First he wanted to go into Asia, then he wanted to go into Bithynia. But Lord, the Lord had different plans. The Lord was leading and guiding Paul and his missionary friends, though, as they were on the move. They were making plans. They were trying to go here and trying to go there. And the Lord redirects them as they go along. We said several weeks ago, I'll say it again. Are you on the move? Mitch, are you on the move? Are you planning? Are you trying, Mitch, to reach others with the gospel of Jesus? Are you planning to make a difference for the gospel? And those that are around you in your life, Mitch, are you trying? Or are you just waiting around twiddling your thumbs for God to open a door? Or are you going for it? God may redirect your plans, Mitch. That's okay. I added the word wonderfully. He wonderfully redirects us because Paul could have never imagined maybe he could. But as the Lord redirected him and changed his plans, boom, come over here and help us. He opened up a door that maybe Paul didn't have on his mind. It's Christmas season about to get crazy but as it does maybe we think again and dream again and plan again and try again concerning those far from God in my life Lord willing I will and then you fill in the blank Concerning those far from God in my life, Lord willing, 
I will. What's your plan? Are you on the move? What are you trying to do for the sake of the gospel? Might go back to our bless lifestyle. Remember that? It's a simple strategy of trying to do something for the sake of the gospel. You be, begin with prayer. Think about the people far from God in your life and begin to pray for them. And then you listen with care. You talk with them and you ask them good questions and as they're talking, you listen. E, you eat together. Hey, Christmas is a great time to do that. Even if it's just dessert and cookies one night. S, you serve. As you listen with care, as you spend time with them, maybe some opportunities to serve them come up. And then as God opens doors, you share or story. You tell your story of how God has changed your life through the gospel. Here's another one. Chapter 6, verse 11, all the way down through verse 40. If you'll remember this, after the call, come over here and help us. They discerned that that was the clear leadership of the Lord, and so they left Troas, crossed over to Philippi. Chapter 11, or verse 11, all the way through verse 40, is the story of the gospel coming to Philippi. Many of us are familiar with the book of Philippians in our Bible, and this is the planting of that church. And maybe if there's one lesson for us to hammer down just a bit more. It's that God's arms are open wide to any and all who come humbly come to him. If you remember this story, it's the conversion story of a woman named Lydia, an unnamed slave girl, and an unnamed Roman jailer. And we noted in this passage that one of the timeless lessons from this story of the church being planted in Philippi is the universal appeal of Jesus Christ. The independent, successful businesswoman named Lydia, the unfortunate, used and abused, nameless slave girl, and the rough and tough working class Philippian jailer who's just trying to feed his family. All of these, all of these came under the sway of the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ. In verse 14, a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. In verse 16, it happened as they were going to a place of prayer. A slave girl, having a spirit of divination, met us, who was bringing her masters much profit by fortune-telling. Paul is going to release her from this spirit. And while we're not told explicitly, the clear implication seems to be that she too came to put her faith in Jesus Christ. And then down in verse 23, when Paul and Silas were thrown into prison, When they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them in the inner prison, fastened their feet in the stocks, 
But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there came a great earthquake. Verse 27, the jailer awoke, saw the prison doors open, drew his sword, and was about to kill himself. Verse 28, Paul cried out with a loud voice, don't harm yourself, we're all here. And verse 29, the jailer called for lights, rushed in, trembling with fear. He fell down before Paul and Silas. After he had brought them out, he said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And this brother put his faith in Jesus Christ along with members of his family. The universal appeal of Christ. Jesus Christ draws to himself from every corner of society. From every nook and cranny of the world. People all over the world this morning. Of course, I'm aware of the time changes. But every Sunday, people gather in his name. Young and old black and white, red and yellow, black and white, rich and poor, educated, uneducated. Think about all of the disparities that you want to think, all of the differences. And yet they come together just as we come together. And they all sing to Jesus because in Him and in Him alone Imagine the, the religions of the world and the idols of the world that are offered. And yet there are people the world over who sing to him because in him they have found the forgiveness of their sins. And in him they have found fellowship with God. And in him they have found life and joy and gladness that they could not find anywhere else. And not only is this universal appeal we noted its unifying effect. The end, when Paul and Silas were released from prison, in verse 40, they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia. When they saw the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. The implication seems to be, after Paul and Silas got out of prison, they went over to Lydia's house, and Lydia was there, along with her family that had come to faith in Jesus. The Philippian jailer was there, along with his family that had come to Jesus. The slave girl was probably there, having come to Jesus, maybe some others, and they were all there together. Universal appeal and unifying effect. So brothers and sisters, this Christmas season, maybe you gathered with family over Thanksgiving, Maybe not, but maybe you will be over these next several weeks. And maybe there's that loved one that you think too far gone. Never going to come to the gospel. Texts like this, along with many others in the New Testament, and really just the theology of the Bible, reminds us, screams at us, not to write off anybody. If you and I had met that Philippian jailer, we don't know, he's probably a rough and tumble kind of guy. He's a former soldier, most likely. Got a job as a jailer there in Philippi, trying to make ends meet, trying to provide for his family. He probably didn't care much at all for Paul and Silas. They were just prisoners stirring up the city. 
probably a rough dude. We might have met him and thought, there's no way he's ever coming to Jesus. And then, boom. In a moment, an earthquake hits. He's faced face to face with death. Sirs, what must I do in order to be saved? Jesus Christ can change. He is the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth. And he can change the circumstances in your loved one's lives in an instant. And the Proverbs tells us that the heart of the king is like channels of water in the hands of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he wishes. There's no one beyond the sovereign mercy of God. So keep praying. Keep asking. Keep knocking. Keep seeking. We don't know what the will of God is concerning the those in our life who maybe don't believe. But Jesus can save them. And maybe you're here today and you're not a Christian. Do not leave here today thinking that you are beyond the reach of the great grace of God. The magnificent mercy of God. The lavish love of God of God. It's for you as much as it's for anyone else. Lydia, slave girl, Philippian jailer, you. You don't know where I've been. You don't know what I've done. God does. And he is in the business of forgiving sinners like you and me. This is what he does. Jesus Christ, the Bible says, came into the world to save sinners. You're not beyond his grace. You're not beyond his mercy. You're not beyond his love. He can save anybody who will humbly come to him. Here's what he did. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world we're, we're going to celebrate it at Christmas. This was a rescue mission. God the Son becomes one of us. Perfect deity, humanity, in one person, forever. And this God-man lives a holy life that you couldn't live and then died upon a cross to pay the penalty for your sins. He went to the cross not because he deserved it, but because you and I deserved it. But he went to the cross to pay for our sins. He became sin, the Bible tells us. The one who knew no sin. And he took in himself the wrath of God. And he died in our place and for our sins. And then he rose again in victory. He is alive. And his arms are open wide to you. We keep going. 
After this, Paul moved on from Philippi to Thessalonica in chapter 17, verses 1 down through 9. And in a phrase, God comes to us in his son, the suffering lamb and the reigning lion. The suffering servant who gave his life upon a cross and the victorious reigning king who rose from the dead and was exalted to the Father's right hand. We saw this as Paul came to Thessalonica in verse 1. Now when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, saying, this Jesus who I'm proclaiming to you is the Christ is the Messiah. He goes to the Jewish synagogue. There are Jews and there are God-fearing Gentiles. And they are familiar with all of the expectation of the Christ, the Messiah. But their expectation and their hope was not a Messiah who would come and suffer. It was a stumbling block to them. And yet that's exactly what happened. That their Messiah came, the Christ came, and he suffered upon a cross. And Paul was explaining and giving evidence that this indeed is what had to happen. The Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead. Going through the Old Testament with them, showing them the anticipation of the one who would come. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world that Lamb of God who would go to the cross and be slaughtered just as countless lambs before him. He comes in fulfillment of it all to be slaughtered for the sins of his people. This one that I'm proclaiming to you, Paul said, this one who died and rose again is the Christ that the Scriptures testified to. And a little bit later, when the persecution heated up and they were dragging the Christians in, in verse 6, when they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some of the brethren before the city officials or authorities, shouting, these men who have upset the world have come here also. And Jason has welcomed them, and they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. We've been singing it all morning. That was one of the themes of these songs this morning. You are the only king forever. Almighty God, we lift you higher. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, suffered and rose again and was exalted to his Father's right hand. He is the King. He has begun his reign that will be fulfilled in all of its fullness in the age to come. A few weeks ago when we looked at this, we pressed home this idea that Jesus Christ is Savior and Lord. He is Rescuer and Ruler. He's the Forgiver of my sins and the Leader of my life. Oh, that we would live like this.
We may or may not talk about this, but I almost do every Christmas, so it's surely to come. We're about to celebrate the cradle where the eternal Son of God became a man. The little babe of Bethlehem. The cradle. But the babe was born to die. The cradle and then the cross. That God would become a man and live a holy life and then die a substitutionary death upon the cross of Calvary. The cradle, the cross, and the crown. The one who came and the one who died rose, was exalted, reigns now, and will come again in great glory and power to establish a new heavens and a new earth and to reign forevermore. Friends, he's not just our Savior. He's the Lord. He's not merely the forgiver of our sins. He's the leader of our lives. He's not just the suffering servant. He is the King, Jesus. From Thessalonica, Paul went on to Berea. In verse 10, the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. We took note of the fact that so many churches call themselves Berean Baptist Church or Berean Bible Fellowship or Berean whatever because of the legacy of these folks. A noble-minded people who searched the Scriptures. And in that sermon, we encouraged each other, didn't we? To be a Bible-reading We believe this book to be the very Word of God. The Apostle Paul said it in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, all Scripture is inspired by God. The Greek word behind that word inspired is theonoustos. You can hear the theos, God. Noustos or pneuma, breath or spirit. God breathed. Theonoustos. All scripture is God-breathed. If you have an NIV translation, that's the way they translate it. It's the idea that the Bible is as if God breathed out the words of scripture himself. Practically, when we talk about the teaching of inspiration, knowing that the Bible was written by human authors like Moses and David and Isaiah and Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Peter, Jude, James... We believe that God the Holy Spirit was at work in and through the human authors of the Bible in such a way that as they wrote, they wrote the very word of God. 2 Peter chapter 1, the Apostle Peter said, Know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God moved by the Holy Spirit or born along by the Holy Spirit 
It's a word used in Acts chapter 27 of, of the boat that Paul was on being borne along by the wind, taken where it could not go in and of its own strength. As Moses wrote, as David wrote, as Mark wrote, as Paul wrote, as Peter wrote, God, the Holy Spirit, was at work in and through those human authors of the Bible to produce his word. That's why we hold in our hands this book and say, this is the word of God. No, it's not. It's written by men. Moses, David. Indeed it was. Men born along by the Holy Spirit of God to produce his word. And not only do we believe that this book is inspired of God, we believe that it's true. Inerrant, without error, wholly reliable, fully trustworthy. If indeed inspiration is true, that God the Holy Spirit was at work in and through the human authors of the Bible to produce his word, and if it's true that God never lies, then it follows that this book is without error. We can trust it. It's fully reliable. When all the facts are known and when properly interpreted, this book will be shown to be holy true in everything that it affirms. And so we believe in the inspiration of Scripture and we believe in the inerrancy of Scripture and we also believe in the authority of Scripture. The authority of Scripture means that when the Bible speaks, God speaks. And theologians would say it is therefore our final rule or standard for what we are to believe and how we are to live. Here's just a couple of statements. This is from the Baptist Faith and Message. The Holy Bible was written by men divinely inspired and is God's revelation of himself to man. It is a perfect treasure of divine instruction. It has God for its author, salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture of error for its matter. Therefore, all Scripture is totally true and trustworthy. It reveals the principles by which God judges us and therefore is and will remain to the end of the world the true center of Christian union and the supreme standard by which all human conduct, creeds, and religious opinions should be tried. We don't stand in judgment of the Bible. We, we bow beneath it, huh? We search the Scriptures to see what's true. We search the scriptures to see his will for our lives. The Westminster Confession of Faith says it like this. Under the name of the Holy Scripture or the Word of God written are now contained all the books of the Old and New Testament, which are these. And then they list all 66 books of the Bible, all of which are given by inspiration of God to be the rule of faith and life. The standard of faith and life. In other words, faith, what we are to believe in life, how we are to live. So let's be a Berean people. If I could nail this one in a little bit more, right? We quoted Spurgeon a couple of weeks ago. Be Bible readers be Bible searchers. Read the Bible. What a treasure 
It is God's word to us. We can trust it. And it's for us. If you need an idea, take one of the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Between now and Christmas, there's about 30 days between now and Christmas. One chapter a day, you can read all 28 chapters of the Gospel of Matthew. Mark is 16 chapters. You could read through it almost twice between now and Christmas. Luke is 24 chapters. You could read a chapter a day between now and Christmas and read the Gospel of Luke or the Gospel of John, 21 chapters. Just if you need an idea to be a Bible reader, a Bible searcher. And just to say again, before you read, pray. And while you're reading, pray. And after you're done reading, pray. Ask God to open the eyes of your heart to see the the glory that is here. Finally, Paul came to Athens. We saw this last week in chapter 18. Verse 1, after these things he left Athens and went to Corinth. I'm sorry, he came to Athens, not in chapter 18. In chapter 17, verse 16. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. Maybe this one's most on the top of your brain as it is mine because we looked at it last week, but the urgency. Remember that? There seemed to be an urgency within Paul as he, as he came to Athens and saw all of the worship, but no worship of King Jesus. All of the idols, a sea of idols, a forest of idols. And yet no worship of King Jesus. And it provoked him, vexed him, sort of righteous indignation. Because Paul was passionate about the glory of God. That he and he alone, you are the only king forever. Almighty God, we lift you higher. He's the only one. He's the only God. He deserves honor and glory and praise and dominion and majesty forevermore. And yet all of the praise and the worship and the bowing down to all of the idols... And it provoked him so much so that he began to tell people about Jesus. He was, in verse 18, preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And then we noted the lack of urgency among the Athenians. They just loved to listen to people talk. Remember that down in verse 21? Now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. They accused Paul of being the seed picker. Remember? He just picks up ideas here and there, strings them together, and blurts them out. And yet Luke is saying, these are the real seed pickers. They just loved it when these traveling teachers came through, and they'd sit and listen, maybe eat some popcorn, you know? As they listened to this guy, and listened to this guy, and listened to this guy, ever learning, but never coming to the knowledge of the truth. Paul's urgency, their lack of urgency, and then the gospel's urgency. 
Verse 22, when given an opportunity, Paul stood, stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The creator, the sustainer, the ruler, the father, the savior, and the judge. Verse 30, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. There's an urgency to Paul a sad lack of urgency to the Athenians. There was no urgency concerning matters of the soul. And yet there is a profound urgency to the gospel. Now is a day of salvation. Now Christ has come. And the forgiveness of sins is offered. And adoption into the family of God is offered. And the gift of His Holy Spirit is offered. Now, but a day is fixed when that offer will be no more. He has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through Jesus, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. God urgently calls everyone everywhere to repentance and salvation in light of coming judgment. May God set that nail deeply into the life and ministry of Redeemer Community Church. Facing a task unfinished that drives us to our knees. A need that undiminished rebukes our slothful ease. Lack of urgency. We who rejoice to know Thee renew before Thy throne the solemn pledge we owe Thee to go and make Thee known. Where other lords beside thee hold their unhindered sway, where forces that defied thee defy thee still today, with none to heed their crying for life and love and light, unnumbered souls are dying and pass into the night. We go to all the world with kingdom hope unfurled. No other name has power to save but Jesus Christ the Lord. We bear the torch that flaming fell from the hands of those who gave their lives proclaiming that Jesus died and rose. Ours is the same commission, the same glad message ours, fired by the same ambition. To Thee we yield our powers.
We go to all the world with kingdom hope unfurled. No other name has power to save but Jesus Christ, the Lord. O Father who sustained them, O Spirit who inspired, Savior whose love constrained them to toil with zeal untired. From cowardice defend us. From lethargy awake. Forth on thine errands send us to labor for thy sake. We go to all the world with kingdom hope unfurled. No other name has power to save but Jesus Christ, the Lord. Let's pray. Oh, Father, shape us by your word. Shape us by the truths of your perfect word. Lord, maybe some of us today need to get on the move for Jesus. Maybe some of us need to be reminded that you can save any and all. And to keep praying and keep praying and keep praying for that brother, for that mom, that dad, that cousin, that uncle, that co-worker, that neighbor that just seems so far beyond the grace of God, beyond the mercy of God, beyond the love of God. Remind us. Remind us that it is not so. Maybe some of us this morning, Lord, need to be reminded that you are not merely Savior, but Lord. Not only Rescuer, but Ruler. Not only Forgiver of sins, but Leader of our lives. Maybe areas of our life where we need to repent. We have not submitted to King Jesus. Would you lead us, Lord? Maybe some of us need to make prayerful Bible reading a more central part of our life. Maybe some or all of us, God, need to be reminded again of the urgency of the gospel. Oh God, as we head into this next month of the most wonderful time of the year, might you open our eyes not only to the scripture, but to the people around us the needs in our city and even around the world. And Would you move us? And may this most uh, wonderful time of the year, God, might it be fruitful. Fruitful in each of our lives for love and holiness sake. Make us a more loving people a more holy people. And maybe it would be fruitful as well for the sake of the gospel. Give us opportunities to share about the good news of Jesus. And oh God, would you draw people to yourself that they might know of your grace, your mercy, and your loving kindness. 
We'll pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.